for celebrating Advent as, as a child, or maybe you still have a tradition of doing Advent at your home. Many of you might have had little Advent calendars that you opened up a door each day as you were counting down the days until Christmas. But Advent is basically that leading up to Christmas Eve. It starts usually December 1st and ends the 24th of December, in preparation of Christmas Day. And this year, we as Neighborhood Church are going to celebrate Advent each week by looking at some of the themes of Christmas that are unveiled to us through the process of Advent. And some of you are going, okay, Kelly, what does Advent mean? I have never heard of Advent, or at least I've heard the word, but I don't know what it means. Advent simply means arrival. That's what the word means. But what we're talking about when it comes to the Christmas season is the arrival of of Jesus, the greatest gift this world has ever seen that has been an expression of our Father's love and grace. It's a demonstration of the arrival of the promise that was given thousands of years even before it was accomplished. See, when it comes to looking at our past, we tend to have a way of condensing time. In fact, it might sound something like this. It seemed like just yesterday. You ever found yourself saying that before? It just seemed like yesterday. Because when we look at the past, all of time seems to condense. And the problem with that is when we apply that technique to the Bible, then we tend to think that the the events that happened in Scripture happened over a short period of time as God's story was unfolding over maybe a couple of years. But the reality is, when we look over the past of Scripture, there was... 4,000 years of God's activity in the world before the birth of Jesus. And from the very beginning to this day today, there has been 6,000 years of God working in our world, of God's story unfolding. So we're 2,000 years this side of Jesus' birth. But do you understand that in the Bible, there was 4,000 years between the creation of man and Adam and Eve's sin and to the coming of the Savior. That means there was 4,000 years between the birth of our sin and the birth of our Savior. 4,000 years. That's twice the amount of time that we've been waiting on this side of Jesus' birth. And to top it all off, on the end of those 4,000 years, there was 400 years where God was silent. Between the work of God in the Old Testament and the New Testament, we don't see any activity from the prophets happening. Yes, there was history. Israel was still having its own personal history. But when it came to the work of God, there seemed to be a 400-year period of silence from God when it seemed like the heavens were shut up and we were left to ourselves. How would people make it through 4,000 years of waiting for God's promise? And then 400 years of those 4,000 years when God seemed to be doing nothing. In fact, it was during those years of silence that folks might have said things like, God, hello, where are you? Have you gone away? Have you left us? Do you even care about what's going on in our lives? What sustained people's trust in God's promise through all of those dark years? It was hope. Hope. 
It was hope throughout all of those times that God was still working out his plan, even though it was hard to see. I mean, I could not imagine 4,000 years. I'm, I'm only 49. I mean, I might sound old to some of you <laughs> in the room. And thanks, youth, for hanging out with us today. You're with us today, by the way, for this service. Um, but that might sound young to some of the rest of you in the room today, right? But my little window of time in comparison to 4,000 years of history where God was unfolding the plan between the birth of our sin and the birth of our Savior. You see, from the very beginning, Christmas has always been a story of hope fulfilled. That's what it's about. That's why one of our themes of Christmas is hope. In fact, there are songs we sing of Christmas that have the word hope in it. One of my favorite lines is in that song, O Holy Night, where it talks about a thrill of hope. That thrill of hope that we see in Jesus' arrival, the advent of Jesus at Christmas time. And Christmas reminds us that God is keeping his promises and that we can be people who hope and trust in the goodness and the faithfulness and the love and the mercy of our God, regardless of what is happening in our time that we live here. In fact, my prayer for you this series, and especially for today, is that hope will rise in your heart. Some of you are going through maybe some difficult times where it's, you feel like you're just struggling. And my hope is that this message will remind you that God is faithful, he's with you, even when life is hard, and hope can rise in these moments. For others of you, I hope that my prayer for you is that your hope endures, because some of you are waiting for God. You've been seeking him and praying about something, and you are waiting for God to answer. And maybe in the midst of that time, hope is struggling. And my hope is that today, you will see God's faithfulness that will allow your hope to endure through the struggle and through the waiting. See, Jesus' birth was not the first evidence of hope. And aren't you glad for that? Because that means there would have been 4,000 years of hopelessness. His birth was not the first evidence of hope. In fact, hope is like a golden thread throughout the 4,000 years of God's activity before the birth of of Jesus. And that hope was kind of like vistas or viewpoints along the journey of the Old Testament. Now, how many of you on a road trip have ever actually stopped at a marked viewpoint to take it in and look? Anybody ever done that? Just don't be shy. We're in church. Raise your hand. Yeah. Some of you have done that. Others of you, you've been in such a hurry to get to where you're going that you've blown right past the viewpoints to take in some of the scenery that our state, which of all states, has some beautiful scenery to take in. Those of you who have actually paused on your journey, pulled alongside the road, parked, and got out of your car, were probably blown away by some of the viewpoints you took in as you stood there and thought, wow, my God is so big, and my struggles are so small in comparison to this. There was a, a recent time I was traveling over to Newport to uh, to teach a bunch of uh, sheriffs at the uh, Lincoln County uh, Sheriff's Department. And uh, I was kind of frazzled that week. There was a lot going on. And I was a little bit early to give my presentation. 
So I just went, because it was over in Newport, right? I mean, there were some great vistas along 101. And so I just paused my, I got out of my car and I stopped and took in the fresh, cool air of the beach and took in that scenery that right at the south edge of Newport, before you cross the bridge, you guys know what I'm talking about? You can look over the jetty and look down on the beach from the lighthouse that sits right there, that old historic house. And I just was like, wow, why would I want to have missed this moment to take in this scenery? See, those are things that kind of, for us, create a sense of the beauty and the awesomeness of what's around us. Now, let's take that example of pausing at viewpoints and remind us that on the journey of life, in fact, this is kind of a summary idea, on the journey of life, pause to take in the viewpoints of hope along the way. Because some of us don't do that. We go through life, and life for you might feel like a back road, a single-lane highway back road where there's twists and turns, and it seems like there is no viewpoint anywhere right now. Maybe for others, your road's taking you through a valley, and it's dark, and you're wondering, when will I ever see the light of day? Just remember that even in the valleys, that's an indication that something is ahead. Because the good news about geography is that valleys don't last forever. What is at the other end of a valley? A peak, where you can pause and look at a bigger picture of what God is up to. So as life is happening to you and the journey of life takes you through twists and turns, remember to pause and take in the viewpoint of hope that God is still on the throne. His purpose and plans for you are not over. He is good, and he is faithful. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to, we're going to take a look at some of the viewpoints of hope that God provided along the journey of the Old Testament story. Because there were times in our Old Testament history that are very dark. And you've wondered how in the world could hope be made available in those moments? How in the world was there a viewpoint of hope in some of these dark moments of, of the Old Testament history? But we're going to look at it today. And, we're, and in looking at these viewpoints, I, I hope and I pray that maybe you'll see how pausing in your own life and taking in these viewpoints of hope will help you no matter what you're going through. So the first viewpoint is this. It's Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve. We're going to go way back to the Garden of Eden just briefly, because you guys know the story. God created the world, and he created it perfect and beautiful. He said it was good. He made man in his image and said that it was good. He made man to be perfect, and he gave a helpmate to man. He created Eve, and he saw that it was good. It was very good. And so all these things happened in, in the beauty and the goodness of God, and he gave man free will. He gave man an ability to choose God or to not choose God. And so in, in that free will, God gave one command. To not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? We know the story. There were plenty of trees to eat from, lots of trees. In fact, one of them was called the tree of life. But yet we know the, the story, the temptation in the garden when the, when the serpent who was Satan came and tested Eve's free will and draw attention to the goodness of that fruit and maybe calling into question the goodness of God who would keep things from them. And so they ate the tree, well, the fruit, not the tree. That'd be pretty awesome. But they ate the fruit of that tree. And while the juice of that fruit was still in their tongues, they recognized what had happened. It says they immediately saw they were naked. 
They were exposed before each other and that corruption of sin into their lives. And what they do, the Bible says they hid themselves and they covered themselves with leaves. That's a dark moment, wouldn't you say? The first episode of sin that unleashed the evil of sin into our world, that's a pretty dark moment. But maybe you didn't notice this part of the story. God was fully aware of what Adam and Eve had done. He was fully aware. But what did God do? He went to them in the garden. God in his grace and his love took the first step. And he said, where are you? And they thought they were hiding from God. Not a very easy task to do. They were trying to cover and hide their sin and their shame. But God entered the brokenness of their world, the garden, took the first steps toward them. And yes, there were consequences for their sin. And in the giving out of those consequences, God surprises us with a viewpoint of hope. Let's look at this very familiar passage in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. He's dispensing the consequences. And by the way, none of us like consequences. None of us do. We love God's grace. We hate the consequences. But let me remind you that actually the consequences are still a sign of his grace. They are. And in giving out the consequences, and he starts with the serpent, he says these words, and I will put enmity between you and the woman. So he's speaking to Satan himself. I will bring enmity, conflict, between you and the woman and between your offspring, which was wickedness and evil and all the hordes of hell, and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. What does that mean? Right there in that dispensement of judgment to man, to woman, to the serpent, God speaks of hope. He says that from this woman will come one who will crush the head of the serpent. Well, who ultimately crushed the head of Satan? It was called Jesus, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead. But what happened to Jesus in the process? He suffered, didn't he? His heel was struck because of our sin. Right there in the Garden of Eden, and friends, there couldn't be a darker moment when sin was first birthed into our world, when perfection was shattered. Right in there, God gives a viewpoint to hope. And here's the summary of that viewpoint for us today. In the darkest moments of your sin, hope shines on a Savior who forgives. Some of you, maybe today still you're wrestling in brokenness and sin. You're facing the consequences of your life choices that have been sinful, and you've wondered, is there forgiveness for you? Hope reminds us, and Christmas reminds us, that even in those dark moments of your sin, that hope still shines of a Savior who forgives. So is that what you're experiencing today? Maybe you're experiencing the brokenness of, your, of, of, of life due to sin. There's hope right now in the midst of your brokenness and sin, just like there was hope right then in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve were still feeling the sting of their shame and their sin. God speaks hope. And the good news is you don't have to wait 4,000 years for that good news. Adam and Eve... They, I mean, that began the 4,000-year journey toward the birth of Jesus. 
that would unfold over time through the presence of God through Abraham and the covenant and the law and the temple and all of those things that would lead up to Jesus. But we today, friends, don't have to go through that process. In fact, a couple of millennia later, so a guy named Paul, I'm sure you've heard of him. This is about 2,000 years on the other side, actually 4,000 years really, on the other side of Adam and Eve. He writes about this in Colossians chapter 1. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Isn't this awesome? I mean, what we see here is that in darkness, light still shines. And he says, I've actually, I've actually rescued you from the dominion of darkness, and I have brought you in or called you into the kingdom, which would be the kingdom of light. That is the awesome news that we have, that even in our darkness of sin, hope still shines, and you don't have to wait. It's available for you today. Well, the second viewpoint we see in the Old Testament is in the journey of Abraham and Sarah as the story progresses forward. This is about now 2,000 years after the, uh, the birth of sin. So the time between Adam and Abraham was around 2,000 years. A lot happened in that period of time, the flood of the earth, all those things that took place, the Tower of Babel, that's all during those, those 2,000 years between Adam and Abraham. Then the story, which doesn't look like much because between chapters 3 and Genesis 12, that's where we find the story of Abraham, that covers 2,000 years of history. Well, when God calls Abraham, he calls him to leave his hometown and to follow God into a place where he will lead, which ultimately becomes the future home of the promised land. He calls him into the land of Canaan. But he has a plan for Abraham, and he tells Abraham the plan. In fact, it's, it's framed in a promise. Genesis 12, verse 2. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So God speaks a promise into Abraham's life. And when does he choose to speak this promise? Let me remind you, Abraham, at this point in time, was about 75 years old. I won't ask for a show of hands of how many of you are 75 or over. Uh, I'll, just, I'll spare you that. But he was 75 years old. Abraham was also, I mean, Sarah was also old, not quite as old as him, but close. They're about a year or two apart. When God speaks this promise. Now, if I was Abraham, and the key word you see in this passage is, I, all the peoples on earth will be blessed through, through you. Not by you, but through you. There was an implication that, Abraham, I am going to give you a child that through that child's seed, the generation will, will be blessed. He was 75 years old at the time this promise was given. If I was Abraham, I probably would have said, God, this is a great promise, but why didn't you bring this like 55 years ago when Sarah and I were quite a bit younger? And by the way, maybe you haven't noticed, God, not only are we old, but Sarah can't have children. They have tried for years. For decades, and Sarah's womb, as the Bible says later, was dead, not able to produce children. 
God, why would you speak a promise like this, not only into the season when that seems way too late, but also in a situation that seems way impossible? Why would you speak a promise there, right? This is probably what Abraham could have been thinking, but Abraham believed God and the promise that God made. He spoke hope into an impossible and hopeless situation. And Abraham and Sarah would not see this promise fulfilled in their bodies for another 25 years. Between when God first spoke this promise in Genesis 12 until Isaac was born, which was the son of Abraham and Sarah, 25 years would pass. 25, even if you're 100 years old, that's a quarter of your life. Which, by the way, was how old Abraham was when he finally had Isaac. 100 years old. We look at that and go, Lord, what are you up to? Now, we know in that 25-year period, Abraham dropped the ball. They tried to do the promise on their own. Ended up producing a child called Ishmael, who became a nation that would actually war against the Jewish people, the children of promise. But that's a whole different story. But God kept his promise, and Isaac was born. But that was just, again, the beginning of the fulfillment of that promise, which we'll get to in a minute. But I love the way that centuries later, Paul writes in Colossians, actually, sorry, Romans. He says this, against all hope. In other words, everything was going against them. And Paul writes in Romans chapter 4, verse 18, against all hope. Abraham in hope. So even though everything was going against him, all hope would appear to be lost. Abraham in hope believed. And what became? And so became. He believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Verse 19, without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. And that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded. And here's the thing that kept Abraham's trust, that God had the power to do what he had promised. And so it happened. And that promise made to Abraham that he'd be a blessing to all nations that also included a promise of a coming Messiah, the anointed king that would come through the seed of Abraham that would bless all nations. Any guesses how many years between Abraham and Jesus? Again, that's 2,000 years before the fulfillment completely of that promise would be made. It was fulfilled in the short term. They had Isaac 25 years after the promise was given. 2,000 years until Jesus would come. And let me remind you, those 2,000 years were not great years. Those 2,000 years between Abraham and Jesus, they were filled with trouble. As you know, the story moves forward into Abraham having Isaac, Isaac having a couple of children, and they uh, would become ultimately the nation of Israel, who would be in captivity in Egypt, who would be set free by the deliverer Moses to go into the land of promise, but spend 40 years wandering in the wilderness because of disobedience. Once they finally get to the land of promise, 
They don't do well in there, and they disobey God, and they become adulterous, and their hearts turn away from God, and they are expelled out of their land of promise into a land of slavery, a place of exile. These aren't happy years. These are still dark times. But all throughout that, God was going to keep his promise. And here's the bottom line for us. When it comes to the viewpoint of Abraham and Sarah, in your longest periods of waiting, hope endures in the faithfulness of God. I'll say it again. In your longest periods of waiting, hope endures in the faithfulness of God. Abraham believed, and God was faithful. So what are you going through? Are you waiting for God on something? Are you struggling through an impossible situation? My prayer is that hope would endure for you because God has the power to accomplish it in his time. In fact, I love the way that after those, after those 2,000 years that were not great, while people waited, God was still at work. Even when you can't see what he's doing, God is always orchestrating the events of heaven and earth to accomplish his will. And during those 2,000 years, he was moving toward the fulfillment of his promise through Jesus. In fact, again, Paul speaks of this in Galatians 4. I love his opening phrase, but when the set time had fully come. Set time. 2,000 years. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. So do you need to stop, perhaps, the viewpoint of hope and God's faithfulness in impossible situations and in long periods of waiting? Because Christmas is about waiting and it's about hoping in God. And if we are willing to ask him and, and to give God uh, and allow God's grace to help slow us down, because we want things so fast, we want things so immediate, to slow down and trust him, that he will remind us that waiting is not wasting when we're waiting on the Lord. You're not wasting your time. If you're waiting on him, he will be faithful. Well, the third viewpoint are the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. So as we fast forward through the story, we know that Abraham became the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of many children, um, and they became the tribes of Israel. And we know that ultimately they had settled into the land of promise, and each tribe was given a certain portion of the land. And once they had settled in their land, they wanted a king. And so God, in his grace, allowed them to have a king. Even though God wanted to be their king, they asked for a king with skin on, right? So Saul is selected to become the king of Israel. And Saul, while he began humbly, became a very proud man. And because of his disobedience, he is, well, basically no longer allowed to be king. And upon his death, David becomes king. All of us have probably heard about David. David rules the nation with righteousness and peace, and his son becomes king after him, Solomon, who builds the temple where they, where they worship God through the sacrifices that they had been doing at the tabernacle prior to that. Then they have the temple, and it's beautiful, and under Solomon, there is years of peace, but even Solomon, although he began humbly, he ended his life being uh, idolatrous, allowing his wives to worship pagan gods, and his heart had been turned away from the living God. Well, that was just a sign of what was going to happen to the nations of Israel 
beyond that point. After Solomon had reigned, his son became king, Rehoboam, but at that point, the nations divided into the southern tribe, which would, be, which would be called Judah, which was primarily around Jerusalem, and the northern kingdom, which consisted of 10 tribes of Israel that became known as Israel. And Israel had their own kings, and they actually began idolatrous worship, worshiping the idol Baal, turning their backs on God, and Wicked king after wicked king in the northern kingdom. Eventually, God did what he said would happen if they disobeyed him in their land of promise, that they would lose their land of promise. And so Assyria came and invaded Israel and carted them off to exile. And the sad story about those northern ten tribes is they never reassemble as the northern kingdom. They absolutely dissolve into history. But during that dark time, when Israel was wicked and turning their backs on God and they were compromising with the surrounding nations and there was cultural upheaval and it looked like everything was going wrong in a nation where God had promised so much good, it was in that space that God raises up a prophet. And the prophet's name is Isaiah. And Isaiah's ministry primarily took place in the southern kingdom of Judah where he ministered to the kings But he was also doing that during the time, during his lifetime, as when Israel had been removed from their land of promise, 722 B.C. But Assyria began to invade and surround Judah, the southern kingdom. And this darkness and this concern, and even as Judah, the tribes as well, had began to compromise their faith and worship foreign gods, that God speaks promise and hope. In the midst of that, let's look at it. Isaiah chapter 7 is the first prophecy we see about the hope of Jesus. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. You're going, well, that sounds really familiar. Yeah, because it's part of our Christmas passage. It's part of the New Testament, but that's not its origin. Its origin was actually given in the Old Testament era of the prophet Isaiah. That God would come, Emmanuel, God with us. That God would enter our corrupted world, that he would be with people who were floundering in compromise, that he he would be in a place that was ruled by godless governments. That's where God himself would insert himself in the coming of Jesus. But we'll get there in a minute. But further on in Isaiah chapter 9, he says this, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness... A light has dawned. In other words, there, he wasn't, comp- I mean, wasn't candy-coating his words. It was dark. It was deeply dark in the time in which the prophet Isaiah ministered. But even in that darkness, a light would shine. In the darkness, a light would dawn. It moves on in Isaiah 9.6. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We love these words because they're like Christmas words, right? Kind of. Remember, this is in a context of brokenness and darkness that these prophecies were given of hope coming. And of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne Not the divided kingdom, but on David's throne over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice 
and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. See, sometimes, friends, we just have to pause, remind ourselves of the one who sits on the throne of all thrones. We need to remind ourselves even today who is king of kings and who is Lord of lords. Why? Because we look around us today and we see our culture in upheaval. We see compromise happening as we continue to corrupt morals in our culture, as we continue to call good what is bad and bad what is good. And we see this cultural upheaval not only affecting our culture right here in Albany, but all throughout not only America, but the world. And we look at this because we watch way too much news. Some of you need to maybe take a break from news, but you watch all this news and you begin to get worried and you begin to wonder what in the world is going on in our world. But we have to pause and remind ourselves, there is one who sits on the throne of all thrones and he is not under the control of any earthly corrupted government. He's not under the control of any political policy. He's not under the control of any governmental leaders. He is king of kings and lord of lords. And even when we look at our world as dark as we might think it has ever been, there have been darker times, friends, and God still has a plan. And in that, we need to pause and take in the view of hope that says this, in times of cultural upheaval and compromise, hope focuses on God's power and authority. Friends, he will make all things right. And I know it's hard for us to understand that when we watch such terrible things happen and we, we, we see social media interactions that are just so terrible, we have to remind ourselves there is one who is above all of this who is Lord of lords and King of kings, and he will set all things right. But he's looking for a few who will continue to be faithful and trust him in these dark moments. The last view point, number four, is when God seems silent. When God seems silent. Jesus um, was not yet coming. That 400-year period, 400 period of time where darkness prevailed, just as the prophets had predicted, Israel and, and Judah were indeed removed from their land of promise, put into exile, and 70 years later, they were allowed to return to their homeland. But during the exile, 70 years of exile, God was still faithful. In fact, even in that time when they were out of their land of promise, they were out of the you know, what we would call the lifestyle of living for God. They were in Babylon. God still had prophets who spoke in those moments when it seemed like all hope was lost. And one of those was the prophet Malachi. Again, there was Ezekiel, there were other prophets, but there was a prophet Malachi. And he spoke and ministered during these times of exile and the exile was temporary. They again returned to their home. And as they returned to their home and they rebuilt their city walls and they rebuilt the temple of Jerusalem and they began to kind of return to life as it was before, there was something very serious that was missing. And maybe you never noticed this in your Bibles as you've read the story of the temple. But once they had rebuilt the temple after their exile, 
The glory of the Lord never filled that temple. We don't see that great event like we saw when Solomon built that temple. And God's presence so filled the house that they couldn't even operate before God in, the tab- in, that, in that temple. In fact, Ezekiel had a vision of the glory of God leaving the temple. And it never returns. And because of that, their religion just became kind of ritual. And there were sacrifices still offered, but eventually, like the human hearts do, they turned toward sin and corruption. And in that is when Malachi spoke. He spoke about issues of their uh, keeping their offerings away from God, about the things they were doing and how they were treating other people. And, but he says this in Malachi 3, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord whom you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. Now the question is, was what Malachi said here, did that actually ever happen? Who is the messenger who will prepare the way before me? When you look at the close of Malachi, who is the first one? that becomes a messenger who prepares the way. It is John. We call him John the Baptist. John was the one who was the messenger to prepare the way for me. Who was the me? That would be Jesus who would come to minister. Would he come to his temple? Yes. And the first time that the presence of God returned to the temple was when Jesus went into Jerusalem, entered the temple, and cleaned it up because corruption had come in through marketing and sales, and they were cheating people out of their money. And Jesus came and cleaned the temple and said, this is called a house of prayer for all nations. He came. The person of the covenant, it says, came. That messenger of the covenant wasn't the messenger of the Old Testament covenant. What did Jesus say in the night his disciples were with him? He broke bread on the Last Supper, and he said, this is the new covenant that he came to unleash. Even in the darkness of exile, post-exile, when people's hearts were still turning away from God, God still spoke. But then after Malachi gets done ministering, God goes silent for 400 years. 400 years of silence. And during that time, they interpreted God's silence as God's absence that he's not there. Maybe that's you today. When you try to cry out to God and read your Bible, you just don't feel like you're connecting and you feel like God is silent to you. Never mistake his silence for his absence. God is at work, much like he was in those 400 years between the last spoken word of Malachi and the opening of the gospel accounts of the coming of Jesus. And in times when God seems silent and distant, Hope assures us of his presence. So when you need to pause at the viewpoint of when God seems silent, you remind yourself that in times when God seems silent and he seems distant, that hope assures us his presence is here. In fact, what has he promised us throughout the Old Testament? Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. That I am with you always. That's the beautiful news that we have. Even when it seems like God is not answering, press through with hope that his presence is with you 
because it never leaves you or forgets about you. Well, that period of 400 years of silence ends with a most remarkable assurance of his presence. And it was an announcement made to a young lady in a village in Nazareth when God dispatches an angel named Gabriel. When he shatters the silence of 400 years to declare this, Luke 1.26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, by the way, that's John's mom, so God was certainly at work bringing the one who would prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. Why would that be the case for Mary? Because God hadn't talked for 400 years. There wasn't any prophet who would say, Oh, by the way, Mary, you know, God's going to come talk to you tonight, so just get ready. It could be a little freaky when the angel shows up. No, there's nothing. God shatters the silence to speak to Zechariah in the temple and to Mary in her house. And there's no warning. There's no prophecies. God just speaks. And she's troubled by it. Because maybe she's going, God, I've heard about you. I've heard stories about you in the Old Testament. Well, she wouldn't have called it that. It would have been called her Bible. I've heard stories of you in the Bible, of how you worked and ministered, but I never thought you still did this stuff today. But God wasn't done. What began 4,000 years ago in the Garden of Eden with the birth of our sin was about to be made right to the birth of a Savior. It goes on. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, remember, of the woman, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. When God shatters the silence, he does it in a pretty crazy way. He speaks of a coming Savior who will set all things right. So the advent of Christ teaches us that we can live with expectations of divine hope even in the darkest of times. Friends, I don't know what you're facing today or what you will face months or years from now, but all of us have had those moments that we would call dark times. But the advent of Christ reminds us that even in those, we can have expectations of divine hope where God allows us, if we pay attention and if we will listen and if we'll spend the time in his word and praying, that we can catch a glimpse of the hope that he is still at work and his purposes will still prevail. Romans 15, 13. My prayer over you this week has been this and myself. May the God of hope, I love that statement, the God of hope. This is where all of our hope lies. The God of hope. Fill you all with joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. I don't know about you, but there are times in my life when I would not use the word overflow with hope. 
When life has bumped into me or when difficult circumstances have, have bumped into my life, I wouldn't say there was an overflow of hope. Sometimes there was skepticism. Sometimes there was doubt. Sometimes there was sarcasm. But hope reminds us that God is still at work. And the God of hope can bring an overflowing hope into your life. No matter what happens, when life bumps into you, I hope hope comes out, that you will trust God. Why? Hebrews tells us, 10.23, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. How do I know that? Because for 4,000 years of the darkest history of the Old Testament, he was faithful. And for 2,000 years, this side of the cross, he has proven his faithfulness in Jesus, and he will come again. Friends, that is all the reason we have for hope. So Christmas reminds us of the hope that God is faithful to keep his promises to us. So as you bow your heads and close your eyes and, and contemplate this message today in light of your own life, which viewpoint do you need to stop at? Maybe for some of you, you're at that viewpoint where you're wrestling with the brokenness of your own sin and the consequence of your sin, and you're wondering, is there a God who loves me and a Savior who can save me? Yes. Hope reminds us that even the darkness of our sin, hope shines on a Savior who forgives. Maybe for others, you need to pause at that viewpoint where Abraham and Sarah struggled and they faced impossible situations and long waiting periods, but hope endured in a God who was faithful to keep his promise. Maybe you're waiting for God. You're struggling and wondering why he's not and you're wondering when it'll happen. Hope endures. Maybe for others, it's that viewpoint of Israel and Judah and their rebellion and their turning away from God and the darkness that came from the exile and the compromise with culture. He is still on the throne. He has a plan. Maybe you're worried about what's happening in our world today. Trust in the one who's on the throne. For others, maybe the silent years is where you're at right now. It just seems like God's not talking. But even in a silence, he's with you. Hope trusts in his presence. So if you're here today and say, Kelly, one of those areas of viewpoint I need to pause and take in today and let hope rise or endure or shine in my heart. Just raise a hand if that's you. Say, Kelly, that's me. I'm there. Pray for me today. I need hope. Thank you. Anybody else? Thank you. Thank you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these viewpoints of hope that you put throughout the history of the Old Testament to remind us that even in dark times, confusing times, in struggles, you were still faithful to accomplish what you have promised. And for those today who are just wrestling with the faithfulness of who you are because of what's happening around them, may the darkness they're experiencing, the struggles they experience, never blind them to the hope that you are faithful. 
For those that are wrestling in the brokenness of their sin, may they know today that you're a God who loves them and forgives them. As your word tells us, if we confess our sins, that you are faithful and just to forgive us. And we can talk to you, and you hear us, and you answer us because of the grace that you've demonstrated to us through your son Jesus, dying on a cross for our sins and rising from the dead to give us victory. Thank you for that hope. So God, minister to whatever the need might be today for hope, that we might trust in the darkest of times in the hope of a Savior who shines through it all. We trust in you, and we have hope. In Jesus' name, amen.